Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiefman. And actually, this is a live recording. We have participants here at our Chabad Seniors Club where we are talking about the energy of Pesach. And so we are continuing from where we left off. Yesterday we were discussing the significance, the importance of the festival of Pesach, which is right around the corner. And what we said in a nutshell, beyond tradition, as we get into the Seder, the Seder is so important because it taps into a specific spiritual energy that is present at the time of our Seder. There's a basic principle of Judaism that everything that happens in this world is actually only a symptom of spiritual energy that has been unleashed in higher spiritual realms. So this is true about everything, whether it is your morning commute or your whatever is happening in the world around us, the news report that you just heard a few minutes ago, everything that happens there is a current present energy and certainly so about miracles when a miracle such as the exodus from egypt which happened a long time ago 3334 years ago to be precise it's because there's a spiritual supernatural special divine energy that is present at the time and that energy is present now as well so the exodus story that we are discussing and learning is it was a symptom of certain spiritual energy that was present in the universe on that day and it's present now as well so now when pesach arrives that same spiritual energy that was present then is present again and so the same energy that allowed for the exodus back then is also present now. We just have to tap into it and experience that liberation just as Shmerel the Shikr that we talked about, right? Now, that's the idea is that we're not just commemorating, we are recreating, we are reenacting the exodus. And that's why it's so important that we make it real to ourselves. That we're not just living history, but we're tapping into reality. And this loops back to the original premise, the idea that the exodus experienced by our ancestors is not just a story that happened so long ago. It's Torah is not his story as Bible's bibliography, but rather it is our story here now today. And it's, it's recurring. It's happening. We have to see how it's playing itself out in our life. So the basic question you have to ask yourself is, how are you going to experience redemption, emancipation, freedom? From what? What form of slavery am I going through? What habit or addiction or character trait do I need to fix? Do I need to liberate myself from? And then I could live by what it says in the Haggadah that in every generation, every day I have to experience that freedom from Egypt. Egypt being not just a 
geographic location in the Middle East, as Dale Carnegie said, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Egypt is also a state of mind. The Hebrew word for Egypt, Mitzrayim, means constraints, limitations. Yitziat Mitzrayim, exodus from Egypt, then means breaking free from those limitations. And so that energy is the one we need to tap into. And this spiritual energy is what we want to tap into at our Seder. And that's why we understand that there's so much precision, so many rules and regulations that we have to understand when it comes to the Seder celebrations. There are so many different elements and aspects and details. And as much as they might sound arbitrary, they're not. There's rhyme and reason for all of it. And that's something we need to talk about a little bit. Like you recall the story I told yesterday about the guy who rings that hollow bell, right? He's ringing the bell, but it's not gonna bring the food unless he has the servants who are already with the food, the caterers and everything else in place. If he doesn't have it, you could ring from today to tomorrow, nothing's gonna happen. And the same thing we have to understand is that with all the details, the precision and of the Seder and everything we do, the only way to tap into the spiritual energy that we want to experience on Pesach is if we are in tune with it. We understand that we want to try to do it in the very best way. Just as Jews have always celebrated Pesach through thick and thin, we don't want to limit our excitement, our enthusiasm, our passion, everything that we have to do to get ready for the Seder. And so it's important that you take the time now in preparing for Pesach and getting ready in the best way possible in order to achieve that liberation, that freedom, which we want and which is, of course, our goal and objective as Pesach comes. Now, it's important to understand that the Seder ritual that we perform today has actually evolved throughout our history. The very first Seder was in Egypt. And after that, they probably did it over 40 years in the desert, although they actually didn't bring the carbon Pesach every year until they got to Israel. In the times of the temple, it was very different than it was today because Pesach experience was a pilgrimage. We went to Jerusalem. We offered the carbon Pesach. So it looks very, it looks different today than it did in the past. Now, the way we do it today is prescribed by the halachic authorities, by many rabbinic figures. And of course, there are traditions and customs and then there are the laws. And we're gonna explore some of those. We have to understand what is an obligation, what is customary, what we want to make sure to do, what we would like to try to do. Now, think of a large grab bag of elements that have to be covered. And the precise Seder ritual is taking all these pieces and plugging them into place, creating one streamlined performative event. So before we dive into the nitty gritty of the Seder, Seder means order. There are 15 steps to the order of the Seder evening, and we have to know exactly how to perform each one. We have to go back first into the elements to understand what we want to achieve, what we want to accomplish at our Seders on Pesach night. So let's start, and those of you present in person, those of you watching online, pay attention to the screen where I will be posting a few important 
aspects. Number one, the mitzvah of retelling the story of the Exodus. It is described as Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim. This is a mitzvah on the night of Pesach. The Torah says, You should tell your children on this day, saying, Because of this, God did this for me when I went out of Egypt. Which is what the message, this is actually a verse in the Torah. In Shemos, in the whole narrative and story of the Exodus. And this is probably, arguably, the flagship mitzvah of Pesach. It provides the setting for the entire event. We are enjoined to stage an elaborate ritual of telling over the story of our Exodus. And much of what we do on Pesach is part of this specific effort that we want to relate the story. That we don't forget. That we remember the story of our history. As embarrassing as it might be. As humiliating as it was that we were slaves. We remember our past. We remember the story. And that takes us to the next point that is a very important aspect that's discussed in the halachic um, literature about Pesach. Maschil bignus, we start with a low, with uh, perhaps something that's somewhat, call it derogatory, uh, you know, something that's not very, we're not very proud that we were slaves, but Messiah B'Shevach, we end on a high. Says the Medrash, the, the Mishnah, in Masachet Psachim, Maschi Begnus, we begin answering the questions with the account of our ancestors' shame. We talk about Our ancestors were idol worshippers. That's not something to be proud of, but it is something to be proud of, because look how we've evolved. And if you look at your own history and say, Oy, I have this flaw and that shortcoming and that mistake, I failed. No, remember the important message. Failure is not getting knocked down. Failure is only if you stay down. Well, that's what the Haggadah tells us. We We start with our shame. But Messiah and B'Shevach, we conclude with our glory. Thank God not only did we survive, but we thrive. Says the Mishnah, We start off with our forefathers. Our forefather was a wandering Aramean. And we conclude the entire story of our slavery, exodus, liberation. So according to the Talmud, the definitive rhetorical method that we use on Pesach is storytelling. The Mishnah tells us, in fact, it's the Hayom Yom thought for today, or was it yes, this morning? Thought is not the main thing, the main thing is action. So if a person is thinking all of the wonderful thoughts of how to conduct a beautiful Seder, at the end of the day, what makes your Seder meaningful is that you did it. Action is the main thing. But there's another way of interpreting this insight. Loi Hamedrash Iker. The main thing is not all the talk. But the story. Stories illustrate the ideas that we want to convey. And we have a nice story. The story helps you to illustrate the point, to articulate the message. So we start on a low, but we end on a high. 
And this element accounts for so much of the narrative in the main story of the Haggadah, of Magid, which begins with retelling of our oppression and how our ancestors, you know, they became slaves. But ultimately they were redeemed. And as all the other messages, it's actually like a, a 5D experience. You're not just telling the story, you're living the story. You're eating the same bread your ancestors ate. You're eating the marrow, you're tasting the, 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 you're, you're tasting the bitterness that they endured. You are dipping it into haroset, which looks like mortar. You're doing things to reenact it. Maybe that's why there's so many Jews in Hollywood, because, you know, that's part of the experience that we discuss here. And that, of course, is a very important message about chinuch, how to educate people. Okay, the mitzvah of retelling the story, the Exodus, which the Torah tells us very clearly how we have to retell the story. When the Torah instructs us to tell the story, what does it say? It's framed specifically in the context of providing an answer to a questioning child. So, of course, that contributes to two major elements of the Seder. Firstly, this question-answer structure of the narrative, okay? Think of the four questions we sing. Right? We start with the questions, and only then do we move forward into further discussion. So you start with questions. And questions, by the way, is a wonderful way of learning. Personally, in Shul, I try to do exactly that. Instead of, instead of just conveying a message, I'll ask a question first. Right, so for example, you take the Hayom Yom of today, which talks about the concept, the idea, how action is important, how you can bring people closer to Yiddishkeit with the right hand, the right hand brings closer, the left hand pushes away. But instead, I open to the question, what's more important, thought or deed? Right? The idea of education, you see it in the Haggadah, starting with the questions, Manishtana, etc. Okay, so that's one way. And of course, there are various rituals that we do. Why do we do? Some of these are just so the kids will ask the questions. A teacher wants to pique the curiosity of the children. Oftentimes when a teacher does something a little funny, a little bit out of character, it gets the kids curious. And the same thing is important, by the way. You know, there's andragogy, the way you teach adults. And it's a little bit more methodical and maybe a little bit more analytical. But personally, I find the pedagogy the way we teach children works a lot better, even with adults. The next thing is we have the mitzvah of achilat matzah. This is explicitly in the Torah. The Torah says, In the first month. What's the first month of the year? Not Tishrei. Now, Nisan. Nisan uh, Tishrei is the beginning of the year. It's ahead of the year, but it's a universal. Rosh Hashanah celebrates the creation of man. It's actually not even the first day of the world's creation, it's the sixth day of creation. So we're the first month, the Torah says on the 14th day of the month, in the evening, you should eat matzah. That's why you can see our staff here at Chabad working very hard getting out matzahs, it's particularly shmura matzah, which we discussed in a previous shiur about the importance, the significance of shmura specifically. And that's why we want every Jew in the country to have at least a shmura, one shmura matzah for Pesach. Of course, you could buy it in the shops. It's not cheap because it goes through a major process, lots of supervision all the way from the times 
from the moment of harvest. Very good. I was going to say, maybe because it's so uh, vintage. <laughs> okay, but the Torah tells us very clearly, Ad yom ha-echad until the 21st day in the month, and that evening you should be eating matzah. No chametz. This is an independent mitzvah from the Torah to eat matzah on the first night, um, particularly at the Seder. Now, in the diaspora, we do two-night Seder, right? Differentiating between Israel and the diaspora, but at least on the first night Seder. What other mitzvahs do we have? The mitzvah of eating um, maror. Sorry, so eating mara. This again is an independent mitzvah, clearly written in the Torah. It says, You should eat on this night, they should eat the flesh roasted over the fire. The matzah with bitter herbs, you should eat it. That must have been really delicious. It was a, a braai of lamb chops or whatever cut of lamb you like, because they, it was the whole entire lamb that was roasted. It couldn't be cooked, it couldn't be fried, it couldn't be sauteed, it couldn't be baked, it couldn't be prepared any other way. The Torah says very clearly, Tzli Eish, it has to be roasted over fire, which teaches us an aspect of Jewish pride. And we're not hiding it out, we're not mixing it with other vegetables or other foods. It is purely the, you can't hide, the smell of a braai like that, right? So again, this is something that already happened in Egypt. When the Jews celebrated the very first Seder on the night before they left Egypt, the night of the 14th, the night that we conduct our Seder. They were told by Maisha to eat the matzah and the marah. Imagine what it, what it was like, especially since back then, the matzah was more like a lafa. I mean, I know that a lot of our Sephardic friends still have matzah like that. Ronnie, could you get matzah like that in Joburg? Lafa matzah? Like Sephardi style? Not in Joburg. But that is the matzah a lot of people eat. It's thick like a lafa. There was a stage in history when matzahs were thinned and crusted. They were made to be the way ours are, very thin and crusty. Personally, I like that very much. But either way, just imagine the original one. What does the Torah say? This is good gastronomy. Take your lafa or your matzah, put in it lamb chops with some nice relish, the maror, wrap it together. Ah! What would Hillel do? We'll get to that in a moment. Then, what else? Now, there's the Karban Pesach. This is what we're talking about. In Temple times, it was a mitzvah to eat the roast lamb the day before Pesach, the 14th. That will be next Friday afternoon. And to eat it that night. So the Seder back then was very different than today. Today, in fact, we don't eat any lamb on the first night, certainly not roasted, anything roasted. You don't do a braai first night Pesach because we want to feel what we're missing, right? So where did the original carbon Pesach take place? At home, right? And with each family doing it themselves. What happened when they came to Israel? Then they would do it in Jerusalem together as a community. Okay, as a group. So while the carbon Pesach is not any longer without a temple, 
we can no longer offer the carbon Pesach, but the spirit of it being a homebound mitzvah with a group of people is very much felt in our current Seder ritual. We get together with family, with friends, we try to celebrate together and to make it a beautiful family celebration. Our current Seder evokes the memory of the carbon Pesach in many ways, as we'll discuss just now. But let's first just discuss the various other elements. Four cups of wine. Now this is not biblical, as you might recall last week's year, it's a rabbinic enactment to evoke freedom. The number four reminds us of the four specific terms of redemption that are mentioned in the Torah in relation to the Exodus. What are they? Let's re quickly recall. The Haitsesi. God says, I will extract you from the land of Egypt. The Hitzalti, I will rescue you. The Gaalti, I will redeem you. Velakachti, Li Laam, I will take you to me as a people, as a nation. So that's the four cups of wine. And of course, there are a number of elements in the Seder that we do, such as the very first one. Kadesh, what's Kadesh? We make Kiddush, we sanctify the day. We have a festive meal, which is called Shulchan Arech on the Seder night. We light our Shabbos and Yom Tov candles. And of course, many other things, which we will discuss in a moment. We'll be right back. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here, 101.9. Chai FM, I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kivman. And as we have been discussing, we mentioned that there are a number of independent elements that form the background of the Seder ceremony. Some are mitzvahs that are unique to this holiday. Some are biblically mandated. Others are of rabbinic origin. But all these are to enjoy, to appreciate the significance of our Seder celebration and to make it easier to fulfill it to a T. Now, finally, we will take a brief spin around the Seder plate, after which we'll be ready to begin business that we want to discuss. And we'll explore the deeper significance as we use them in the actual Seder, we'll talk about how we're meant to actually apply each of these mitzvahs. So, here you can see, this are some of the verses here that the Torah tells us, how we're meant to celebrate the holiday, specifically, explicitly in the Torah itself. Now let's look at our Seder plate, okay? Our sages instituted that there be two cooked or roasted items on the Seder plate to commemorate the two main dishes that would have been consumed had we been in the times of the temple. So in the temple era, they would offer the carbon Pesach and the carbon Chagiga, the Paschal Lamb and the festival offering, which was a, which was cattle or sheep. Now, if you're looking at your Seder plate right here, on the top right is the Zro'ah, Zra literally means an arm, and that represents the Karban Pesach offering, which was a lamb. Now, it was roasted back in the times of the temple, as we discussed, but today, what people do is you take a roasted piece of meat or poultry, and uh, we use a neck, a gargle. The neck, oh, oh, personally, we use the neck of a chicken in my family. But regardless what you use, 
I think originally it was uh, the, the neck of a, of, of a sheep, or the arm of a sheep actually, to symbolize God's outstretched arm, because the carbon Pesach was a sheep, right? So since we no longer offer the carbon Pesach to avoid giving the impression that we have violated the law of the Torah of bringing a carbon Pesach, you can't offer a sacrifice outside the temple. So the custom has evolved and people use chicken or whatever they're using, but the cooked item, that's the roasted, I mean, we're doing a Pesach retreat. We just roast, we barbecue, we bry a whole lunch of uh, chicken necks and that's what we do. It's symbolic. We don't eat it. We actually make it as charred as possible so we won't be tempted to eat it. It smells good. Okay, the, 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 the second item, as you can see here, it's an egg. That is to commemorate the Korban Chagiga, which was the festive offering. And Chagiga um, means holiday. The Hebrew word for an egg is be'ah. Be'ah is, or beitz, in Hebrew it's beitzah. In Aramaic it's be'ah. Okay, interesting. That's why there's a mesechet be'ah. Why be'ah? Because that's the Aramaic word of beitzah. It's be'ah. But that, interestingly, if you look at the Hebrew word be'ah, or rather the Aramaic word, it's etymologically related to the word to desire. Yeah and recalls how God wished to redeem us with an outstretched arm. Now, besides for that, you might notice that in general, when people are in mourning, sadly, lo alenu, they tend, it is a custom to eat an egg because the egg being roundish is symbolic of the cycle of life. And so it's a food that's traditionally eaten by mourners. The egg on the Seder table is in fact the symbol of mourning. We're mourning for the fact that we don't have the Holy Temple and the absence of the Holy Temple, we feel very much in a very real way on Pesach when we're meant to celebrate and yet we're not in the temple. So we feel it and we mourn for it in that way because we wish we could be there in the temple experiencing this. Let's zoom in to the middle of our Seder plates, our Ka'ara, and inside we could see the marar, the bitter herbs. As we discussed before, that is a biblical origin. It is mentioned in the Torah, even though the Torah is talking specifically al matzot marorim which means you have to have the carbon pesach on matzah and marar, with, with matzah and marar, but we no longer have the obligation of bringing the carbon pesach because we're not in Jerusalem, we're not in the temple. So today it's a rabbinic custom, but of course it is a fundamental part of our Seder. Now the Mishnah lists five herbs that classify as Marar. Now, there are different types depending on your tradition. I know that in Chabad custom, we use lettuce. My father would use endives, but we all know horseradish. Okay, chrein, yes. Now while the romaine lettuce, not exactly, is it bitter, right? And that, I mean, you try a, a Greek salad or whatever salads you make with lettuce, it's not a bitter, it's not a bitter herb, okay? But if you left your lettuce unharvested, then the lettuce becomes very bitter. And the same applies for our bondage experience in Egypt. That initially the Egyptians, they coyly roped us into thinking that we were helping this national effort and we have this opportunity to do so in comfort. Remember the Jews came into Egypt 
in a royal fashion. The viceroy of Egypt was Joseph, the great uncle. Everybody was excited. Mishpacha, protectia. But unfortunately, with time, they were turned into slaves. And this is very much the way a lot of life's problems work, especially if we're comparing the Egyptian slavery to our own slave mentality, the way we get caught up, caught up in certain bad character traits and into certain behaviors and certain patterns of or addictions or habits that, you know, at the beginning it might be enjoyable, you know, at the beginning it's ay ay ay, and then it becomes oy oy oy, okay? And once they were ensnared into coming into Egypt and to doing all this, then they were brutally oppressed. And like the lettuce, we could think, even though it started off sweet, and the lettuce we get is harvested obviously before it gets bitter, but if it sticks around too long, it could become increasingly bitter. And this of course is a message to all of us as well, not to allow bad habits to become our second nature, because it's very difficult to break them. And of course, those can become addictions and can be very bitter to our lives, could be the source of a lot of difficulty. In fact, the chrein that we use is more of a custom. I don't know if it's even amongst the, the bitter herbs that are mentioned in the Talmud. But of course it's very bitter and it gives us the chance. And if, you've, if, if you're involved with making it, I as a kid used to grate the chrein at home, it, it causes one to, to, yes. Okay, the marar appears twice on the Seder plate because it's used twice during the course of the Seder as we'll discuss. Let's go to the bottom of our Seder. Here we are. Um, bottom right of the Seder plate. What do you got here? Charoses. On the bottom right, you have the charoses, which was a sweet paste. And the literal translation of charoset. Anyone know what it literally means? Charoset means an earthen, means earthenware. An, an earthly material of, of the mortar. Yeah. Charissa? Clay. Yeah. Yes, they, it symbolizes, it commemorates the mortar that our ancestors were forced to use while they were slaves, slaves in Egypt, laboring for their taskmasters, building cities, pyramids for Pharaoh. The, the Torah actually doesn't say pyramids per se, it just says the cities of Pitom and Ramses, but you know, perhaps whether it was our ancestors or other slaves who built the pyramids. But regardless, the charoset mixture is one, there's different customs of how it's made and people have different ways of doing it. However, you like to do it. We always kept it simple. It was always apples, pears, walnuts, and we add some wine. Uh, but people use all types of things. Um, apples and pomegranates and walnuts and almonds and cinnamon and ginger. Whatever you like, whatever tickles your fancy, you could use in your haroset. Okay, next, let's look at the bottom left. What do you see there? Karpas. Okay, what's karpas? Any vegetable, the truth is, works. But we have a custom of using cooked potato and onion. I know other people use celery, parsnip, radish, cabbage. Whatever custom works for you, you take it and you're going to dip it into salt water, correct. 
The salt water, of course, reminds us of the tears. We'll get back to the carpas. What I want to do first is just look at the Seder plate. I will dissect the reasons for it when we get to it in a moment. Now, what's under all this? We have our matzah. Not everybody gets to put the matzah under their kaira. My father had this elevated kaira, so on the top he had his kaira, the Seder plate, and underneath it he had the matzahs. For some reason, that wasn't the Chabad custom, so Chabad next tend to put all these items directly on the, directly on top of the matzah. Whatever works, whatever is your custom, that's what you do. Now eating matzah, we discuss, is a mitzvah in the Torah, and obviously at its core, matzah is exclusively flour and water. It's prepared and baked at a great speed and high temperatures so that you prevent the dough from rising, from leavening, and three matzahs, are used to set up the Seder plate, but depending on how many people will be at your Seder, you might need a lot more than three matzahs because firstly, you have to make sure it's Shmura matzah, okay? Besides for that, you wanna make sure that you have sufficient amount for everybody to, in, to have the right amounts. Like we said, there are this precision, the specific amounts that have to be consumed. Now let's look, let's sink our teeth into the how of the actual Seder before we go into the why. In most printed Haggadot, in the Haggadahs there are 15 steps, simanim, that are recited at the beginning of the Seder. In fact, we do it as a song so we could, we could go through it. But before I get into that, there is something else you gotta do which ushers in the Yom Tov, and particularly this year that Pesach begins on Friday night. And that is Hadlakat Nerot, it's lighting the Shabbos and Yom Tov candles. On the first night, two brachas are recited. The first one is for the holiday itself, Lahadik Ner Shel Yom Tov. And the second bracha, who knows which bracha it is? Shecheyanu Rekimanu Veigiyanu Lizman We thank God for bringing us to this very special moment, for allowing us to live yet another year, it's a yet nice Yiddish expression, and to experience this very special mitzvah that only comes around once a year. Now let's go through the steps of the Seder. There is of course that good old, there's a different songs. I grew up with but there's another popular tune. So before we step into the Seder, we remind ourselves of all the steps. We give it like a quick refresher. Now, of course, Pesach is a festival, and just like every Shabbos and every Yom Tov, it is sanctified over a cup of wine or grape juice. Okay? Pardon? It's Raz. Yes, Raz. Just a reminder, a reminder to light a, a long 
burning candles for the second night of Yom. Very good point. Thank you for that, Raz. And that's a reminder to everyone that, in fact, this morning my wife and I were in kosher world buying those yardside candles. The yardside candles that last 24 or 48 hours are important because you cannot... You have to light from an existing light. If for whatever reason you forgot to light a, a yardside candle or it was extinguished for any reason, then you could always ask a Gentile to light a flame for you. But ideally, you don't know if you will or won't have somebody around available. Light a yardside candle like Raz is mentioning and you will thereby have your candles ready and lit. So from the candlelight, also very important, is usually in a yumpt of night, you don't have to light it exactly before 18 minutes before sunset. This year, on Friday night, as any Friday night, you have to light it 18 minutes before sunset. And not only that, the second night, Saturday night, you have to make sure to light it after the stars come out, which is something like 620, I don't know, look in your calendar exactly. I did have it around, but the point is, everybody makes Kiddush. Very interesting, usually we call it Kiddush, but here it's called Kadesh. Kiddush means it's the act of sanctification. Kadesh is an is a commandment. It's like, you should sanctify. On Pesach, we remind ourselves the importances of sanctifying the world around us, making it a holier world. The world needs more sanctity. And so the cup of Kiddush is the first of our four cups. And actually, as we said before, there are precise, specific amounts. There's a halachic amount, which it has to be uh, approximately 80 something mils, I forget the amount. 86 mil, you say? Or 3.2 ounces, depending which system you use. But whatever the case, make sure that you have the specific amount. And that's why it's better to, there's also a concept called rov kos. We have to drink most of the cup. And there's also the idea of overflowing. Now this doesn't mean you should waste wine or grape juice, but the idea is you, you want your you want to evoke the imagery of overflowing blessings in your life. So you lift up the cup. And there's a specific way you're supposed to do that as well. And you hold it in like a cupped palm of your hand. And you're going to recite the Kiddush. You'll have the overflowing wine spilling into the cup of your, into your cupped hand or into your saucer. And when you finish Kiddush, there's more specific rules. Firstly, you have to drink rov kos, which means most of the cup, at least 50, 51% or more. And while you're drinking, you have to lean, you recline in your seat to the left. And this is the traditional way, at least in ancient times, to demonstrate that you were a free and a noble person. Royalty, nobility, they used to drink and eat in this fashion. So for all of the cups, the four cups, we drink them and the eating of the matzah, reclining to the left. That was step, that was step one, Kiddush. Or you could say after candlelighting, it's step two. Now let's go to the next step, which is Urchatz. What's Urchatz? Washing the hands. But there's something very interesting here because you're not washing for bread. You're not eating the bread yet, but again, we want to pique the curiosity of the participants, particularly the children. So we want them to ask why. 
So that is one of the points we do here because usually we're ready to start our meal. Before eating the meal, we're gonna wash our hands to eat bread, but we're changing it up a bit. Do something a little different. Yep, exactly. This is a little bit of a tease. Now after you wash, the next step is karpas. We take a little bit of the vegetable that we discussed, the raw potato and the onion or the parsley, whatever you're using, and we're gonna dip it now into the salt water. The salt water recalls the, the tears of slavery. Now, before you eat your karpas, you have to make a bracha. Say the bracha bari priyadama. And have in mind that later you're going to eat the marar with that very same blessing. Wait, what was Urchatz? Oh, he said we're washing it. Yeah, you had a question? It's me again. Yeah. Um, the first verse we don't say bracha. Oh, very good. Thank you for that. No bracha. That's right. It, let, uh, yeah, no bracha at this stage. Uh, there's no bracha until at your dime, but there is a bracha of bore pri adama. Okay. Now, the fact that we are doing something different here, that we're doing something to get the kids to ask questions, is this idea that we have to get creative. We want to relay a message. Don't just force things down people's throats, down their minds. But if we get a little creative, then we could attract people's attention a little bit better. Now the key to learning in general is inquisitiveness. Children need to be taught to ask questions, right? We could just tell them what Pesach is all about, but we prefer that they ask questions. We do things to get them curious. And in this way, there's a much better chance that they'll be listening, that they'll be paying attention. And it also teaches them to continue to ask questions and to seek meaning in everything that they see. Rabbi Torsky of blessed memory used to tell me that before he would go to school, and I do this now every day with my kids, his father or his mother, I think his mother would, t- would, ask, would tell him, instead of just saying, um, his mother, when he would come home from school, his mother would, would say, did you ask a good question? <laughs> and not just, what did you learn today? That's what we usually ask. Did you ask a good question? So I tell my kids before they go to school, ask good questions. So this is part of the point. By the way, if there's no kids at the Seder, there's a child inside each of us, isn't there? Yeah. So use the opportunity to think about the aspects of Judaism that we should really be exploring further. And let's ask those Questions. We'll be right back. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiefman, and we are continuing our discussion about the Seder. We're now holding at the fourth step, which is, what do we say? Kadesh Orchatz Karpas. Now goes Yachatz. Yachatz is the fourth step of our Seder. And before we begin reciting the bulk of the Haggadah, which is Magid, we do three things. Are you ready? Number one, Yachatz, we break the middle of the three matzahs, which we turn it now into what's called Lechem Oni, the poor person's bread. And well, to begin with the matzah's lechem on it's already a poor person's bread. After you paid for all that matzah, boy. Now, on the contrary, we say, whatever you pay, God blesses you and pays you back. But, 
the poor person's bread, we are now making it so to say even poorer, right? Poor people would really have a complete piece of food. Now that we broke it, it's really symbolic of poverty. And this is to remind us about the slavery in Egypt. The larger piece is put away to be consumed later by yourself and the rest of your crew after the meal is over. What do we call that dessert? Afikoman, very good. And the smaller piece remains inside your Seder plate. Now, within that, we now are going to pour a second cup of wine. Just like the first cup, but you're not going to drink it yet, at this point at least. We're going to recite the story of the Exodus over this cup. Then we ask the four questions, right? Manishtana. Manishtana halaylaze mikol halelot mikol halelot shedechol halelot anu achlim chametzu matza chametzu matza halaylaze halaylaze kulo matza. Come back Monday for more. Okay, so we are going to ask the four questions. Manishtana, if there are children present, they should be the ones asking the question. Of course, they're already noticing the changes in the sequence and the order of the way we do things. So they're already curious and it's important that we talk about the Exodus as a response to questions. Besides for these four questions, I'm sure the kids have lots of other questions. And in fact, we should encourage the kids to ask questions. Of course, if there are no kids, you ask the question. Now, in, in, when I was a kid, we, had a, we would do it in Yiddish. In fact, we did a little bit of a different order. In the Chabad custom, we start with the customs first. So we start off with matbilin, why do we dip? But we would start off in Yiddish. Father, I want to ask you four questions. Why is this night different from all other nights? Tunkemirain zweimal, einmal karpas in Salzwasser und das zweite Mal morgen gereist. Hast verstanden? Kapisch? Kaprende? Oh, we have a, a Sephardi who understands Yiddish. How do you like that? But Rani could sing for you uh, a Yiddish mama. So of course he understands Yiddish. By mir bist du schein, by mir ist schein, right? Of course, even if there's no kids, ask the questions. And if you don't have a parent to ask the question to, then who will you address your question to? Tate and Himmel. Remember, we have a Father in Heaven. And even if we don't know Him, He knows us. And we must address the questions to our Heavenly Father and ask God Almighty for answers to all the difficult questions, especially the pain and suffering that exists in this world. And this is where we begin to recite the story. This is Magid, it's the opportunity where we are fulfilling the obligation of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim to retell the story of our exodus from Egypt. Because this is the whole thing. We start off with Matchilim Bignai, we start with the low part and we end in a high. The narrative is 
this whole section of the Haggadah called Magid, where it used together a pattern, beginning with the low, with the shame of our ancestors, that as we said before, that our ancestors were idol worshippers, and then slaves. But ultimately, God emancipated, God delivered them, and we realize and pray for our own redemption. Of course, at the end of the Seder, when we sing L'Shana Haba Yerushalayim, but we'll get to that probably only next week if we want to go through this in great detail.